Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent. I'm here with my co-host, Sean Cheatham. And today, uh, we are going to be discussing kind of a touchy topic in the reform world, if you will, but an important one. Um, so we're going to be uh, diving into the confession. We're actually nearing the end of our study in the confession, um, and we'll unravel that as, as uh, we go along. Um, just a reminder to everyone that we are on YouTube. If you want to get alerted when new videos come up, uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's called The Particular Baptist. Hit subscribe, hit the bell so you get alerted when new videos are uploaded. And with that, I will turn it over to Sean to introduce our topic in the confession today. Yeah, so today we'll be going over chapter 24 in the confession, and this is dealing with the Christian's relationship to the civil magistrate. Uh, this chapter is one spot where there is a significant difference from the, uh, the Westminster. Mm-hmm. Um, at least one paragraph is deleted. And um, they, uh, the framers of the confession were trying to take away, essentially, uh, the Westminster's emphasis on the state enforcing true religion. At the same time, uh, because of the common accusation against the particular Baptists of the day that they were just Anabaptists, the framers of the confession uh, included uh, a portion saying that uh, Christians could be members of the civil magistrate and uh, could uh, participate in war under certain circumstances. Yep. So it it was actually very important for them historically, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Um, especially as it relates to the Anabaptists. So with that, we'll dive into confession. It's only three paragraphs, and we'll we'll talk about, you know, we'll read one, and then we'll talk about um, each one as we go along. It's a very short paragraph, but there's a lot here, or a very short chapter, there's a lot here. All right, paragraph one says, God, the Supreme Lord and King of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good. And to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword for defense and encouragement of them that do good and for punishment of evildoers. So here, the writers of our confession, this is the second London Baptist Confession of Faith, they wanted to establish what the civil authority was and where that authority came from. That it wasn't just grounded in, um, you know, a paper or in some constitution. It was grounded uh, in God's authority to establish them as governing authorities. And the verses that they use in their proof text actually only give one um, or one passage. It's Romans 13, one through four. And we'll go ahead and look at that real quick. Romans 13 verses one through four. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrong doer. So we see here, Paul is establishing this structure of authority. You have God as the ultimate authority, you have the government, and then within a civil society, within society, secular society, quote unquote, if you will, 
that we are to submit as Christians and be subject to those who have been placed in authority over us, particularly the governing authorities. And in this time, that would have been the Roman authorities. The Christians were to not be uh, rabble-rousers. They were to be lawful citizens of uh, wherever they lived. And this was because God had established that authority. The authority was not given on man, on the basis of man's law or man's uh, authority. It was given on the basis of God. So to resist these authorities was to resist God himself, really. Yeah. It's a very American idea to have the government power or its rights come from uh, the idea of consent of the government. It goes back into that enlightenment, enlightenment uh, philosophy. But really, this is stands in stark contrast. Government's authorities come from God. It does not come from consent of the gover- governed necessarily. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. The enlightenment. Uh, a lot of, I would say a lot of that thinking came out of an anti-Christian, anti-religious worldview. Um, it, it was sort of undermining it. The freedom of the individual became primary, these individual rights that people had, instead of understanding that, yes, we do have um, certain aspects of us as that we, we have right to in the sense that God has made us in his image. You know, we, we have worth because of that. We are to be treated with dignity and respect and, and these rights are, that we enjoy like in our country are good. However, we have to understand that government is not bad. As, um, as some say, government is good. Government has its place. It is there to, um, to enforce the law. It is to restrain evil. It is to keep order in this world. It's, it's God's way of keeping sin at bay. That's really what it's for. Um, and John MacArthur notes kind of what, where this authority comes from. This is from his commentary on the, uh, on the Bible, on specifically talking about Romans 13. He says, quote, human government's authority derives from and is defined by God. He instituted human government to reward good and to restrain sin in an evil fallen world, end quote. So government's role is to restrain evil, to keep peace, to enforce justice, and uh, they do so uh, from the direct authority of God himself. Yeah, um, and that's obviously a, a good thing. You do get a lot of people in the Reformed world having a, an interpretation of this passage that basically says that the state is supposed to enforce the uh, civil law of the Old Testament, uh, for example, verse four, it says, for he, that being the state, is God's minister to you for good. So the argument would be if he's God's minister, if he's God's servant, he's supposed to do all that God says in the Old Testament, uh, the the civil code. And we would have a, a slightly different view of that. We would take this, this is currently, when Paul's writing to the church in Rome, he's referring to the Roman authorities and saying, that these authorities are doing good in what they're doing and they're not enforcing the, the civil uh, law. So it, this is more in a general sense that the state uh, promotes good because if you're the state, you don't want massive theft, massive murder. You want right. stability and order. And that's good for the flourishing of Christians, even if the state might be wicked in other ways. And certainly the Roman uh, empire was wicked in a lot of ways. 
But even as Paul goes on, despite the fact that this is a wicked empire, he tells us in verse seven, render therefore all, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So even a wicked state like Rome, you are still supposed to pay your taxes to. And as much as I am a, a libertarian and want to say taxation is theft and, and, and <laughs> some, some sense uh, egregious taxation very well may be, when we pay our taxes, it's not ultimately our money, right? All, all good things right. are from God. So if God has instituted the state and we're to support that state through our money, then it's, it's not theft. They do have a legitimate claim on that money. Maybe not as much as they would want to take, but they do have a, a legitimate claim in some sense. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And this going back to the system of government that these Roman Christians were under, they were under a tyrannical government, a sinful government that did not treat them necessarily justly or, or perfectly. Um, yet they were still called to support that government. And Jesus talked mm-hmm. about this too. Um, I, forgive me, I don't remember the passage where it was, but he told them to essentially render under Caesar's word yep. to Caesar's, render to God who is God. And, and I would say that's a perfect passage d- describing separation between church and state. Um, but, you know, there, there are certain things that you render to the church, certain things you render to the state, they're not to be mixed. But Jesus was very clear that, you know, that included taxes. We give to Caesar what is owed to Caesar. And Paul talks about that here, that, you know, we were, we're to pay everything we owe. We're not to owe anyone anything. And that's in the context of paying taxes. So, um, yeah, we have an obligation to support the government. Uh, we believe, as particular Baptists, government is good. Government is not bad, as um, our libertarian or sometimes our conservative friends would like to say. Um, the, the problem in, in government that you see comes from sinful men, not the government itself. It's not the government that's the problem. It's sinful men in them that are enacting unjust laws or performing unjust acts. And that's where the problem lies within civil government. Um, and I, I, I do want to make a distinction because you, you do often hear the accusation being leveled. Oh, if you're saying submit to the government, does that mean if the government says for you to sin, you would do it. Mm, And the answer would be obviously no. Peter says, shall we obey men rather than God? And Acts, I think it's Acts 4, but I might be wrong. Yeah, that's right. Yep, we're to submit to God as the ultimate authority. And I think that goes back Mm -hmm. to who grounded the authority of government. It is God. And if God grounds that authority in government, he is the ultimate authority even over that government. Mm -hmm. So his law, his precepts take precedent over anything the government says. but that doesn't mean when we say that God is the servant, or I'm sorry, that the government is the servant of God, that he must enforce the law of God as it was shown in Israel. Um, mm-hmm. I think we see uh, brothers like Jeff Durbin going down that road um, at more of a post-millennial theonomist mindset. Uh, we, we do not believe that, and we don't believe the confession is teaching that either. Our particular Baptist fathers saw this freedom of conscience. They did not see um, the church and state to be mixed and the church would be enforcing God's law in that way. We see that from what we talked about last week. What is the nature of the law of God um, is very clear and distinct in that way. All right. I don't think I had anything else about that section. Did you have anything, Dan? No, I think I'm ready to move on. Paragraph two. All right.
You want to read it? Yeah, sure. So paragraph two. It is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of magistrate when called thereunto in the management whereof, as they ought especially to maintain justice and peace, according to the wholesome laws of each kingdom and commonwealth. So for that end, they may lawfully now, under the New Testament, wage war upon just and necessary occasions. So this is explicitly going after the Anabaptist idea that... You basically had to, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but retreat from the world. You you couldn't play any part of the uh, civil government. It was inherently sinful to do it. And you had to be a pacifist based on their understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. We would definitely disagree. Um, The Old Testament is very clear that there are just conditions for waging war. Mm-hmm. I don't see Jesus in the New Testament actually being in variance with that idea. Uh, people like to bring up the idea that when uh, Peter chopped off the ear of uh, one of the sermons, servants uh, when Jesus was being arrested and Jesus told him anyone who takes up the sword shall die by the sword, right. that this is some sort of blanket prohibition against uh, fighting of any kind. And I don't think that's true. If you look at um, Luke 22, starting at verse 35, um, well, actually, I'll start at verse 36. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. He's uh, setting the disciples up uh, to buy weapons for protection. And there's, I don't inherently see a, a contradiction there. It was obviously wrong for Peter to uh, use the sword to try and protect Jesus because Jesus' whole mission was to go and die on the cross. So he was working against that. But at the same time, I don't think he's, Jesus is the one who's telling him to get swords. And that's probably the sword by which that uh, Peter chopped off the servant's ear. I don't think that's necessarily contradictory. And to do so would be to pit Jesus who, always affirms the authority of the old testament to pit him against the old testament and that's not something our lord will appreciate i assure you (laughs) yeah well if we want to uphold that jesus didn't sin he doesn't lie Um, yes yeah but that that's very true i think there's this tendency to overemphasize loving your neighbor as yourself and loving your enemies and taking those passages and saying, look, Jesus said, love your enemy, do good to those who persecute you. So why in the world would you kill your enemy or fight your enemy or whatever? But we would say, okay, but the command to love your neighbor as yourself was given in the old Testament in the context where Israelites were told to go and slaughter people. (laughs) So there, there, there's a place for, for violence and war. And especially as it relates to the governing authorities. And even Paul talks about here in Romans 13, he talks about, the sword being wielded by the magistrate and he does not bear the sword in vain. It's for those who do evil. So capital punishment, enforcing the law via force, sometimes deadly. Those are all legitimate forms of enforcing order. And that's biblical. Um, So we have to be very careful that we don't fall into the hermeneutical trap of taking these verses and just cherry picking them. We have to be very, we have to take all of scripture and the entire counsel of God. Um, with that said, we do see historically that the particular Baptists were definitely 
speaking out against the Anabaptists. And I think they were trying to distinguish themselves from the Anabaptists because I believe the, the Presbyterians and Puritans at the time saw Baptists kind of in one big lump. You know, they were just like, oh, those Anabaptists over there were just, you know, they're causing trouble. And I, I think they wanted to clearly distinguish themselves. And like, no, 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 we don't, we don't believe what they believe about the civil government. Um, we see an early in pastor or Dr. Tom Nettles talks about this. Um, John Smith, and this is not the one from Virginia, it's S-M-Y-T-H. John Smith was an Anabaptist in Holland, and he spoke out against, um, I guess, the civil government in general, and basically that it was evil. He said, quote, that if the magistrate will follow Christ and be his disciple, he must deny himself, take up his Christ, uh, cross, and follow Christ. He must love his enemies and not kill them, just like we talked about here. He must pray for them and not punish them. He must suffer persecution and affliction with Christ, and that by the authority of the magistrates, which things he cannot, possi uh, he cannot possible do, and retain the revenge of the sword, end quote. So John Smith and Anabaptists saw a contradiction between loving your neighbor, loving your enemies, and the civil government using the sword against its enemies. And he's basically saying that if they're really going to follow Christ, they can't do this. So the civil government's bad, at least in this sense. Um, and the particular Baptists are like, no, you can serve as a magistrate if you would like. We, because this, is this institution is established by God, it is good, it is used to enact peace, and it is God's servant. So you can, you can serve as a civil magistrate as long as you are enforcing those laws that are wholesome meaning laws that are consistent with God's word, obviously not unjust laws, um, and you can wage war um, justly as needed. And this was, this was just in flat contradiction. And, and a proof text they use here, I think it is, Luke 3.14, um, kind of along the same lines that you were talking about, Sean, with regards to Jesus saying, um, let, you know, sell your cloak and go buy a sword. Uh, Jesus is talking about soldiers here. It's Luke 3.14. Turning to it. So soldiers also asked him, and I, I believe it's talking about Jesus. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. So you see here that Jesus is not telling soldiers to just simply leave their post. He's not saying, all right, just, you know, I, I'm against fighting, loving your enemies. You need to stop being soldiers. Well, soldier, a soldier's job is to kill enemies, to enforce the law, to wage war. Um, and so we see here that Jesus is not telling them to do that. He's telling them to live justly in their positions. Don't extort money. Don't take things from people you shouldn't be doing. Um, but and basically be an honorable soldier. So we, we do see historical and biblical precedent for serving in, in government, whatever that might be. So I, I definitely agree with that. Although I do think in context, um, it is actually John the Baptist that are, is uh, saying these words based on uh, yeah. two there. Yeah, that's why I wasn't sure. I, this is a proof text that they use. Yeah. Um, well, but obviously, I, I, I think it's safe to assume, though, that um, yeah, John the Baptist isn't saying anything that's contradictory exactly. to, to what christ would teach yeah jesus lifted him up as the the final prophet and uh the greatest among men 
I don't think that when Luke wrote this, he was writing it, and but he disagreed with what John was saying here. Right. <laughs> you you would think he would have put a caveat or a note in there or something saying, hey, exactly. well, okay. Or, or Jesus would have referenced it specifically later. Yeah. They were to yeah. live justly in, in their government positions. And I, and the, the tax collector is also rolled into this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to see. It says here, I'm using the Reformation study Bible. Uh, it says like tax collectors, soldiers were tempted to use their position to enrich themselves. John enjoins honesty on all, all four gospels have an account of the ministry of John the Baptist as he called people to repent in preparation for the coming of Jesus. Luke alone tells us that John said to questioners who were unclear about what it would mean for them. So people were, Hey, what does this gospel mean for me and what I'm doing? You know, and he's giving them specific teaching on what that means. I think, and this is my last thought on the, uh, the paragraph. I think their idea within Christianity or within uh, that Christians have that, because the government is so evil and plagued with corrupt people, anybody who professes to be a Christian in there must automatically be lying. How could they, or deceived, how could they be a Christian in that environment? And that's why we're skeptical of Christians who might want to be in the government or who might be in a governmental capacity. Mm-hmm. But you do have to remember it is possible for a godly man to be in the government and surrounded by corruption. The, quintessential example i would go to is daniel daniel was mm-hmm. both uh a official in nebuchadnezzar's reign and then later in cyrus's reign and was had was constantly coming into conflict with wicked people and yet we have no example of him sinning and god clearly showed favor to daniel so i would say that it is possible and therefore, we shouldn't necessarily we shouldn't necessarily say to Christians, "Oh, you shouldn't go into government." No, obviously, there's a, a sense in which it might not be appropriate if you're seeking it for the wrong reasons for power oh, yeah. or whatever. But but there is an appropriate um, it is appropriate for some Christians to go into government if that's where the Lord has called them. I'll say it that way. Right. Yeah, that's a great example. And we even see in Daniel that it says that God gave him specific knowledge, of secular knowledge, not just you know biblical knowledge. He had to learn the culture he was in. He had to learn the government system, the, the laws of the land, as the, the cultural norms, whatever it might be, to be able to fulfill his position. So this idea that we have to somehow restrict, you know, remove ourselves like the you know, the Anabaptists today, we see the Mennonites and the Amish tending to kind of removing themselves from society, the Amish more than the Mennonites, but Mm -hmm. trying to separate themselves in a way that really we don't see biblically. We don't see this in um, the Old Testament prophets, and we certainly don't see Jesus doing this type of attitude um, or the scriptures teaching this. So, yeah, that's a good point. I think Daniel's a very good example. Joseph is another one. Mm -hmm. Genesis, you know, serving as the um, Pharaoh's right-hand man, um, in a corrupt government that murdered his own people, murdered babies in his own, that would do so later. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, those are things that um, you, you can serve as a light in those places. Um, and men will hate you sometimes, like with Daniel. He was thrown into a lion's den. Um, 
because he would he refused to submit to the king's command to not pray to anyone but himself or to to the king so yeah that's that's very good all right i will read paragraph three then okie doke Civil magistrates being set up by God for the ends aforesaid, subjection in all lawful things commanded by them ought to be yielded by us in the Lord, not only for wrath, but for conscience sake. And we ought to make supplication and prayers for kings and all who are in authority, that under them we may live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. The second part of this is very important. We are to pray for kings and all those in authority over us Mm -hmm. for the purpose that we would be able to live quiet and peaceable lives that the end goal is not for a revolution or whatnot right pray that the the kings would change their behavior so that we can live peaceable lives and that the gospel can spread and that basically that we would not be disrupted in our, our worship and yeah (laughs) yeah yeah no no that that's very true um and i think historically here this is a place where baptists deviated from the westminster confession as the westminster confession expounds upon these principles at, at least the original did the original westminster confession before the revisions that came later teaching that the civil government has a role in the church's um teaching has a role in the church's behavior, which the Baptists flat out rejected. They believed in freedom of conscience, all the while still teaching in submission to the governing authorities. Um, But that is, it's very important that we submit to the governing authorities. And it's not just a submission out of fear to the governing authorities because of what they might do to us, although that is certainly plays a role in why we should submit. But we should submit to the governing authorities because God has told us to. And that's what Paul's saying here when he says, for conscience sake. We're to do so in a higher standard than simply just because we're afraid we're going to go to jail or whatever it might be. We're to do it because God has told us to, and this institution is here on God's authority, specific good authority, not just you know decreeing that it comes to pass uh, like any other thing would, but God has ordained this as his servant to uh, promote justice and keep the peace on earth and restrain sin. So we are to submit to, uh, to the governing authorities for conscience sake, be, at, out of submission to God, ultimately. Yes. Yeah. And going back to the idea that the state would be involved in church affairs, uh, Christ is head of his church. And we as Baptists don't believe there's necessarily any intermediaries in between like, in a Roman Catholic system, Christ is head, but then also you have the popes, and then you have the bishops, and then you have the local churches. Um, similarly, if the government is to rule and promote the true religion, we'll say, in the church, at some point now the government has become an intermediary over the church, and I, we don't see that anywhere in the New Testament. Uh, you do have a, a parallel in the Old Testament in Israel, in a sense, the king is supposed to read the law and follow it. Um, but I don't think there's a one-to-one mapping between Israel and the church 
if there was, then we should be advocating for some sort of theocracy, but you don't see the apostles going out and doing no. that when, when they go to say Felix or when they pr- go to preach the gospel to any of the um, Roman rulers, that's what they're doing. They're preaching the gospel. They're not sitting them down and being like, you need to implement laws based on the old Testament. You need to create the true religion in your area no it's always a gospel call it's always directed at the person not necessarily the state apparatus yeah and and we see that error being vetted out in the church of england you know what what is the queen she is the head of the church by default just because of her status and that we would say is definitely an error biblically yeah Um, now we're not saying that you can't there's no authority in the church obviously we have elders church officers but they are instituted by Christ and they submit to Christ as found in the word of God, not through another body outside of the church. And that's really where the Westminster divines got it wrong. You know, they, they say, um, quote, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruption and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed and all the ordinance of God duly settled administered, and observed End quote. So there was really another authority outside of the church from their point of view that ensured that the church was doing what it was supposed to be doing. The Baptist was like, no, 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 no. That's, that's not mm-hmm. what we believe. We believe in freedom of religion. We believe in freedom of conscience and the ability mm-hmm. to worship as we would like. The, the state has absolutely no business being in that. Um, yeah. And they could even call synods, um, I believe, under, that, under the, Westminster, the original Westminster Confession. I mean that that's dangerous. That goes all the way back to Constantine, yeah, uh, in the um, in the fourth century, where he was, you know, on behalf of the state trying to fix the church, calling uh, councils together. You know, you had the Council of, um, I believe he called the Council of Nicaea, which uh, had great results, but was not that the means did not uh, were not consistent with biblical teaching. And that idea is actually going to come and bite a lot of the Puritans um, during that period of history, because eventually the Puritans are kicked out of the English government, the monarchy is restored, and then you have severe persecution where basically you have to be a member of the Church of England in order to preach. And that's when you see people being thrown in jail or uh, in the case of some of the covenanters who are Presbyterians, uh, they're, they're being executed. So the, uh, the, the idea only works if the government is actually promoting the true religion, because if you give it that power and it promotes a not true religion, then uh, we as true Christians will be in trouble. And right. because God, because Jesus has not promised us that the government in this life will be composed of, people who want to promote the true religion you're, you're setting yourself up for failure there yeah that that's very interesting yeah because you see kind of this back and forth because after the westminster assembly you had cromwell come on the scene and then you had some religious toleration but then yes you had charles ii come back and he persecuted um he persecuted those who did not submit to the state church and then you had the act of toleration in 1689 which is when our confession came out um, so you had more religious freedom, but yeah, there's the shoe, I guess, you know, it's like when the shoe is on the other foot, you have problems. Cause yes, you have to assume that your government is going to actually uphold 
the true biblical religion, which we see consistently throughout church history, that is almost never the case. And if it yeah. is there, it doesn't last very long. Yeah. Um, it, even in Calvin's Geneva, you know, he tried uh, to establish some sort of theocracy in Geneva, if you will, that led to, but the council was always against him, almost always against him in creating all of these conflicts between what Calvin thought the church should be and what the state thought the church should be. And there, and it just never ends well. It never ends well. Yeah. But Sean, but Sean, we, we, you know, it, the perfect system has never been tried yet. So come on. (laughs) (laughs) We just haven't perfected it yet. So Stan sounds like an advertisement for socialism there, Dan. Ooh, true, ouch. True, true communism has never been tried. Ouch. True, yeah, true communism. True, <laughs> yeah. True, uh, true Christianity has never been tried before. Right. That's always the cop-out, right? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. Um, next week, we will not be having an episode. Uh, we will be postponing that. Uh, Sean actually is in a seminary and will be doing a final that day. Or, or at least at the end of the week. So I'm going to give him a break. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we will be, Lord willing, uh, releasing an episode the following week, and we should be finishing up our study in the confession. We're going to be going through uh, the chapter on baptism and the chapter on the church. We probably won't hit every paragraph, but we thought that they were so intertwined with one another that it would be good to discuss both, and we can wrap both of those up in one week. So uh, we should be finishing uh, that up. And then Lord willing, we'll be having a special guest on our show. Uh, More information to come. But uh, wish everyone a happy 4th of July weekend. And Lord willing, we will see you in a couple of weeks. Have a good one.